Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with host, friend, doctor, expert, nice person, Susanna Greer. How are you doing? Hey, Joe. I'm awesome. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Shout out to Carl Sachs, Dr. Sachs, our old colleague. He was a He's retired now. He's a longtime ACS scientific program director. And he's the one, Susanna, that first turned us on to this guest, Dr. Stacy Finley. He was a huge fan of hers. She's the Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering and the Gordon S. Marshall Early Career Chair at USC. Mathematical models. Um, you know, I, I didn't think this would happen so soon in parenthood, but I've already lost the ability to help my daughter with her homework. She's three. <laughs> and, you know, she's I, 13, it, Joe. She's not three. Well, anyway, um, math is useful. So so for all if, if, if you've got kids, unfortunately, mine's not one of them who's who says things like, oh, when am I ever going to use this? Well, Dr. Stacy Finley uses it. You know, her work is all about creating a mathematical representation of what's happening in biology. Because if we have a mathematical view of how reactions are happening in cells, um, how they're interacting with each other, then we can simulate them and we can make predictions about what could happen. Susanna, this blew me away. Yeah, Stacy's. oh my gosh, she was just amazing in so many ways. And I have never heard a better description of computational biology before. I've, I've heard examples and analogies that she led us through to help us understand well first of all why right i always you know when you're thinking about math and you're learning trigonometry and calculus like why so she was able to really nicely show the why behind mathematical modeling and how it's so critical in cancer research um which in a nutshell is that it is a way for us to take data experimental data from either the lab or from clinical trials and in a very cost-efficient and time-efficient way, ask questions about if we change this dose of this drug or this parameter or that one, how would it impact the outcome? And then we can use the data that come from those mathematical models and put them back into experimental systems and back into clinical trials and in a more refined way and much more quickly move science forward. So you are gonna love hearing from Stacy. We talk about wide ranging topics all the way from the research she's most excited about to her outlook on mentoring to things that are really hard as a woman of color and science and how we can do better to be more inclusive and to make sure that all ideas are brought to the table and that everyone has equal opportunities in science. So I just absolutely loved this conversation and I think you will too. Good afternoon, Stacy. How are you doing? I'm doing good, although it's actually still morning here in Los Angeles. But yes, it's been a great morning so far. Awesome. Well, you're going to make us jealous as we uh, <laughs> sit here in Atlanta, but through the miracles of podcasting, we can we can chat. So if it's okay with you, we'll dive right in. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, first things first, our listeners want to know all about your field. So uh, help us understand what is systems biology? Sure. So when I think about systems biology, it's really trying to understand 
a whole system. So in our case, we're really interested in reactions, sets of reactions or networks of reactions that are happening inside of cells. Instead of just looking at one reaction at a time, we really want to look at the whole set of reactions that might help us know how a cell could become activated. And so in doing that, we have a better sense for how um, individual reactions might affect the whole system and might affect the whole cell and also the cell's behavior in the context of tumors. And so when we think about systems biology, it's really trying to look at things from a holistic perspective rather than looking at one reaction or one molecule at a time. Oh, interesting. And I, I appreciate your sharing that systems biology is it focused to understand the whole system and use words like networks and understanding how the whole contributes or how the parts contribute to the whole? So I'm, I'm really interested to dive in a little more into one specific application of systems biology that you focus on, and that's understanding the immune system. So this is pretty cool because Whenever we think about the immune system, it's kind of a, a great example of systems biology, right? It's this amazing number of different types of immune cells that come together to, to carry out a function. So, all right, if it's okay with you, we'll, we'll dive in then. Yeah, so actually I agree. The context of the immune system really provides a nice platform for applying systems biology approaches because just as you mentioned there are many different types of immune cells um, they interact with one another and they interact with tumor cells as well and then if you look inside of an immune cell there are lots of different reactions that are happening and so we want to understand how just as what you said how individual parts contribute to the whole system level behavior so we can use mathematical modeling and use computational analysis, which is a big part of systems biology, to understand how um, modulating or affecting one reaction inside of one type of immune cell would influence how that immune cell uh, interacts with other cells within the tumor and how those immune cells then would target and potentially kill the tumor cells. And so it's really, it, it's, a, it's an important type of approach to take because of the complexity of the immune system and because of all the reactions that are happening inside of cells and because of all the cells that are interacting with one another. And that also helps us to think about why um, mathematical modeling and systems biology would be helpful because we can start to account for this level of complexity that might be difficult to really study in detail with experimental approaches. Okay, very cool. But before we go too far along, I think that many of us can appreciate how incredibly complex things like the immune system are. And, and you mentioned that you have all these different cells that are interacting with each other to accomplish a goal. And then you have all of these processes or networks inside each of those cells that are also driving towards some goal. I and you've shared in a really beautiful way how we can use different tools of systems biology. And you mentioned a couple. You mentioned mathematical modeling and computational modeling to start to understand some of these uh, 
really intricate interactions that either cells are having or that are happening within cells. But I want to take just one step back and make sure we all understand what those terms mean. Can you share with us what is, I I don't know the order in which you'd want to do it, but I I feel like I knew about mathematical modeling first, and then I learned about computational modeling. Could you tell us a little bit about what those terms mean? Sure. Yeah. Mathematical modeling. And Really, I'm, I use mathematical modeling and computational modeling almost interchangeably. There are some subtle differences, but really what I think it's important to appreciate is that we are trying to um, have a mathematical representation of what is happening in biology. And so what that means is that we want to have a mathematical view of how the reactions are happening inside of cells, or we can have a mathematical view of how cells are interacting with one another and how that influences the growth of the tumor. And so really when I say mathematical modeling, it's a set of mathematical equations that we put into a computer and then we can simulate those so we can make predictions about what would happen inside of a cell or what would happen between two cells. And in that way, we are really Um, able to do some simulations and make uh, predictions that would help us to hopefully better understand biology. Okay, so I think the next question I would have if I had never heard Mm -hmm. about computational modeling or mathematical modeling would be why? (laughs) So why, especially so if I guess I'm thinking about it, especially folks who, you know, just math in general, can be less accessible for some of us than others. So that was a full explanation of what these different approaches are. And you shared that they are a representation of what's happening in biology and that what you are going to be generating are equations Mm -hmm. that are simulations. So I guess the next step is why would you do that? So one way to ask would be, how can these models actually help us to develop mm-hmm. um, things that a, a would be useful in the cancer community? So how could we think about using these equations to develop, um, for instance, better clinical use of, we were thinking about the immune system. So immunotherapy is something we all think a lot about. So how could, maybe we'll ask the questions in two pieces. Why would you do this? Why would you mm-hmm. use equations to drive changes in therapies? And then maybe you could give us, if you wanted to, a specific example related to immunotherapy. Yes, this is this is exciting. I enjoy talking about mathematical modeling and also trying to help other people appreciate why we would want to use mathematical modeling. So let's start there first. I think one reason why it's helpful to have a mathematical model is because then we have a tool, a framework that we can use to answer particular questions. And one um, advantage of doing mathematical modeling compared to going into the lab and doing hands-on experiments is that it can save time and it can save money and other resources. So if we think about trying to understand the immune system by just doing experiments, that takes a lot of time to grow up cells and to manipulate the cells and to 
to monitor the cell's behavior and it can take a lot of time and resources and energy and we can have if it's a true um, and predictive mathematical model we essentially have another framework another representation of what is happening in biology that then we can use to answer particular questions so if we have a mathematical model we can use it to say well what happens if I administer a particular type of immunotherapy and how would that affect the overall growth of the tumor and what happens especially if we think about a systems biology perspective what happens if we turn off a reaction how does that influence overall the growth of the and so really if you think about it even doing experiments in the lab we are still doing some kind of modeling right it's not an exact replicate of what's happening inside our body and so that helps us to think about what a model a mathematical model is it's a it's a mathematical representation of what's happening in biology and in both cases with experiments and with mathematical modeling we can use those as tools to better understand biology so i think that sort of hopefully answers the first question about why we would use mathematical modeling it is because it allows us to have another tool at our fingertips to begin to answer more questions and better understand biology. And then the second part of your question, which is, um, let's talk about an example of where this can be useful, is um, we have, even in my lab, we have a mathematical model of tumor growth and the tumor, the model of tumor inside of the computer includes tumor cells and it includes other types of immune cells. And so we can have this model and then say, let's administer a type of immunotherapy that would increase the uh, killing capacity of these immune cells to be able to target and better kill tumor cells. And so then we can say, well, what happens if we give dose A in our mathematical model? How does that compare to the effect of giving dose B? And how overall does that change the volume of the tumor? And so we're really just trying to have a tool, a framework that we can use to test different treatment strategies. And that's really um, an advantage and a great utility of having mathematical models. Oh, that was fantastic. And it's so easy to understand how you would have synergy between the modeling approach and the experimental approach where they are constantly feeding each other, right? where you have experimental data and clinical data that drive you to say, you gave a, a really nice example about changing the dose of a specific immunotherapy. So if you, if you knew you had a certain range from either data in a lab or a clinical trial, you could feed it into your mathematical model, and then the data that you would have would would drive new experiments and and potentially changes in clinical trials. Does that is that a reasonable way to think about it? That is exactly how we should think about it. And you know, I didn't talk very much at all about how do we even build a mathematical model, but what you just said is is very true in that we use experimental data, we use clinical data to build the mathematical model, to make sure that our model is as much of a representation of what we know experimentally as possible, so that we have this model that we can rely upon to make 
um, useful predictions. And then we can go and do lots of simulations with the model, make some new predictions, and then go back with, in my case, um, collaborators that would um, do some experiments that would allow us to test and validate the model predictions. So it is very iterative cycle between getting some experimental or clinical data, using that to build the mathematical model, using the model to make new predictions and going back and testing those predictions and hopefully impacting treatment opportunities or patient care. You know, I think that we cannot understate the need for data and for the refinement of data in this space, right? I mean, especially in immunotherapy, where one of our biggest struggles is why is immunotherapy so incredibly impactful for some patients and some tumors and not for others? So I think this is a really wonderful example where modeling can save time and money and really help us to make educated decisions about where different therapies can have the biggest impact. So this is a a really wonderful example. I wanted also just to say that it helps us to um, generate new ideas about what might work, right? So with this is another advantage of mathematical modeling is that we can try as many ideas as we can think up Um, in a shorter amount of time and with fewer resources and with fewer um, dollars to spend um, compared to doing experimental studies. And not to say that it's going, mathematical modeling would completely replace experimental studies because hopefully um, I have uh, convinced you that there is this tight relationship between generating data and using the data to build mathematical models. But what's nice about the mathematical modeling is that we're not limited in the number of different trials, essentially, that we could do with the model. And so it helps us to see what's possible and then, again, go back with uh, colleagues to try to test and validate the model predictions. So it's fun to hear the excitement in your voice about (laughs) modeling and the impact that your work and the work that you do with your colleagues and work that modelers all over the world in the cancer community are having. It's been an incredible field to watch the growth here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you may have a hard time answering this question, but I want to pivot back to something you said, which is that you wanted us to appreciate that mathematical modeling allows you to generate new ideas. So I'm wondering if there's an idea or a finding or a, a challenge, something that you're really excited about right now or really proud of. I think we'd love to hear it. Yeah. So when I first started doing mathematical modeling within the immunotherapy space, we began to work on um, developing a model to better understand chimeric antigen receptors or CARs. So this is probably a type of immunotherapy that many people have heard about. It's one that has been Um, enormously effective in a certain kind of cancer called B-cell lymphoma. But um, what we essentially have done is to have a mathematical representation of this vastly complex set of 
reactions that are happening inside of T cells. And T cells are a type of immunotherapy where these um, engineered receptors called CARs can be expressed so that we can alter the T cells, have them express the engineered receptors, and then give this population of engineered immune cells to the patient in hopes that that engineered immune cell would then be able to target and kill tumor cells. And so a lot of work has been done in developing what that engineered receptor should look like, like what are the building blocks that it should be comprised of. And um, although it's known that, you know, this type of immunotherapy works really well, some of the mechanisms of action, so why that type of therapy works well was not known um, to a very detailed extent. And so with our mathematical model, we can start to answer some of those questions about why is it important to have this particular building block there and why should it be there in combination with another building block? And so we can we have been able to use our mathematical model to answer those kinds of questions that can help guide the design of these engineered receptors and hopefully, right, the idea would be to help um, better design the, the engineered receptors, but also identify perhaps what designs would work best for a particular subset of cancer patients. And so again, with the mathematical model, there are lots of different details that we can include in the model and then ask questions about, does this particular design of the engineered receptor work better for population A or for population B? And so those are the kinds of questions that I'm really excited to have mathematical modeling be able to answer. And we've already made some progress in this area and we have a lot of work to do, but we're really trying to come alongside um, experimental researchers um, and help them you know, guide the design of their experiments, and then also, of course, the design of this particular type of immunotherapy. You know, that's such an awesome representation of how useful and impactful modeling can be um, for people who don't think about immunotherapy and, and these receptors that are found on these immune cells all the time. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that I, I like to think about them to show how intricate these building blocks and interactions are between immune mm -hmm. cells and tumors is like like Legos. Like if you've ever played with Legos as a kid or maybe a grown-up kid or your yeah. children, you know, if you the the fit of two Legos that are right for each other, that are made to go together, is really tight. So if you've ever had to mm -hmm. pull apart Legos that are made to go together, you know it's really hard. But mm -hmm. if if you try to stick together Legos that really seem like they should fit and the holes just don't line up exactly, it just doesn't work. And that's, mm -hmm. it's kind of how immune cells work. You know, when they bind, when they use those receptors to bind to the right target, in this mm -hmm. case, a tumor cell, that fit is super tight and it's so important to understand those building blocks. So yeah. we can make immunotherapies better. So I, I I think that's a really wonderful example. So I understand why you're super excited. That's awesome. Yeah, and you know, with the model, we've been able to uncover maybe something that's counterintuitive that we wouldn't expect. So sort of following up on your analogy of Legos, let's say that we have this immune cell called a T cell, and we're trying to 
um, again, engineered the T cell to express these receptors. Something that we found with the model that we totally were not expecting is that it's not always helpful to have the um, immune cell to have on their surface all of these different Legos. So we don't want to have too many Legos that would poten potentially bind to the uh, target cell, the tumor cell, because that can lead to too much activation and um, some side effects for the patient. And instead, there's really perhaps a defined range of how many of these receptors should be present on the T cells to have the optimal desired response in killing the tumor cells. And that's something that maybe, again, we wouldn't expect. Maybe we would say, well, let's just have as many receptors on the T cell as possible so that we can have the maximum response in killing tumor cells. But what the model is telling us is that we really need to refine and almost have a design of the overall um, like uh, characteristics of the tomb of the T cells so that we do have the desired response in killing tumor cells. You know, the coolest thing about that is that I, I agree with you. Not only would we not expect that, but I don't mm -hmm. think we would have looked for it experimentally. Mm -hmm. So oh, how wonderful that you can have data generated from a model that is predictive and encourages us to explore options that we probably would not even have asked the right questions in the lab. So Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then it's exciting to go back and test those predictions um, and see under what conditions and what in what context um, they really make sense. So Stacey, I'd like to switch gears a little bit because you are, my audience can't see you, but you are so young and so incredibly accomplished. So I'd like to talk a little bit about mentoring because in science, mentoring is absolutely key for the next generation of scientists. So I imagine you have some mentoring experiences. Some are probably better than others. And I also imagine that you have a, a very specific approach to mentoring. I would love to know um, if you would be willing to share some lessons that you've learned along the way about how do we mentor that next generation of scientists? Yeah, I think something that's a, dis, uh, a defining feature of my mentoring style is to tailor it to every trainee. Um, so what that means for me is that I really un have to understand and I had to learn early in my career that I can't apply the same strategy for mentoring and motivating and engaging trainees um, across the board. Every student that comes into my lab, every postdoc um, is motivated in different ways. And so what I try to do is to really have like more of a conversation with a trainee, first of all, to help me understand what are their career goals and where do they see themselves? And then we can start to think about, well, how can I help you achieve those career goals? And um, that, again, means that I have to learn more about what excites them, what motivates them, and then how can I um, be a great mentor that would help them achieve those goals. The other thing that's really important that I try to do with my students and trainees is to really realize that 
mentorship is, is holistic. It's not just me helping them get this new result with our mathematical model or um, get another paper published or get a fellowship or or an award. It's really helping them think about, well, where do I see my career going and what are the pieces that I need to be successful in achieving that goal? So, for example, we talk about writing. Um, so it's really important to be able to um, describe your scientific results in a way that's um, accessible to people who are right in your field and also to a broader audience. We talk about oral presentation. So it's really important to be able to present your work in a way, again, that people can understand the significance, the importance, and then dig into some of the results. Um, we also talk about uh, goal setting and leadership. I try to mentor my students so they, they can be good mentors as well. And so, again, maybe the defining features are to be um, tailoring my mentoring style to each trainee and then to also think more holistically about what makes a great scientist. It's not just the ability to code and create these models, but it's, it's a lot more than that. And so I try to really bring into the conversation a lot of different pieces that are important for um, being successful as a scientist. You know, one of the things that really struck me as you were sharing that really lovely philosophy about mentoring is I think you've become a modeler <laughs> in your mentoring approach, right? Because it <laughs> seems like the words that you use exactly describe mathematical modeling. You talked mm -hmm. about tailoring and refining and really thinking about how is each of these trainees different? How are their mm -hmm. needs different? And what kind of pushes and pulls can you apply in order to help them have the scientific career and impact that they'd like? So I think you've you've become what you do. <laughs> That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but when you describe it back to me that way, yes, I can certainly see it, right? Just like we want to have a mathematical model that could be, you know, very personalized and patient-specific, it's analogous in how I mentor and interact and engage with my students. I'm going to use that if you don't mind, Susanna. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I'd like to dive down into that personalized approach a little bit more because I think that our differences in who we are, so in our gender and our race and our backgrounds, certainly make us all unique and allow all these fantastic perspectives and ideas that each of us uses in very different ways to address research challenges. And so we, we want to increase diversity in science so that we can have the very best ideas brought to the table. I, I would love to hear any advice that you have for aspiring mathematicians and engineers and particularly young women of color. I certainly think that you are a role model to everyone, but I'd be interested to know if there's any specific advice that you would give to individuals who may see themselves in you. Yeah, I think I think one way that I like to encourage um, women of color who are interested in science and engineering and mathematical modeling is really to get comfortable being the one or being one of just a few. 
I mean, to be very honest, right, there the number of um, women of color, you know, people of color in STEM and science, technology, engineering, and math um, fields is very low. It's not representative of the population as a whole. And so, for example, when I go to a conference, a research conference to present my work um, in my field, there are very few people who look like me. And so that can be discouraging, that can be um, isolating. And so I feel like one piece of advice that I try to give to women of color and other color that I mentor is to try to help them understand that um, it's not a reflection of your ability or your capacity or your p potential. It's more um, having to do with some structures and systems that have been in place for decades that um, lead to these racial inequities. And so I have to be very honest and encourage women um, of color and scientists of color to say that you're most likely going to be one of just a handful of people in your field. And so that can be discouraging, it can be uh, frustrating, but it can also be an opportunity for you to shine as brightly as you can and for you to do the very best work as you can because um, you have the opportunity to really forge a new path and pave the way for others who could come after you. And so that's really how I treat my own career is saying that perhaps in some small way I might make um, new opportunities available or I might make the goal of becoming a, a professor in biomedical engineering seem more likely and more attainable for a younger engineer who's coming behind me. And so that's why I say it's an opportunity to shine more brightly because, again, you can be one of just a few and you can forge this path and really become a role model to others. And so it sort of turns it around in terms of like what I try to do and what I try to encourage other women of color to do is just to get used to that feeling, but then use it to motivate what you do and how how impactful your science could become. Uh, what a beautiful way to think about a really, an incredibly challenging space to be in. And I, I love your sharing that you like to think of it as a, an opportunity to shine brightly because that just, it brought to my mind this vision of a light and what's the purpose of a light. And when you have light that, brings our ability to see things better that we're in the dark. So mm -hmm. with that, there will be challenges and hard things, but such incredible opportunities. So I'm really grateful for you sharing that. And um, what a lovely perspective. So I, because I work at the American Cancer Society, I'm always interested to know, um, what can we do better? So do you have thoughts on what funding agencies can do to make careers in cancer research more inclusive? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> um, sort of related to my previous comment, like the previous question about um, how to encourage scientists that are from groups that are historically underrepresented in science and in engineering and mathematics, there is a strong um, lack of funding, a clear lack of funding um, for scientists of color. 
and the numbers, the data are there. For example, NIH funding um, levels for black PIs are at 50%, 55% of the level of funding for white principal investigators, white PIs. And so the data are there and that hasn't changed since 2000, the year 2000. So for 20 years, we've known about these uh, funding discrepancies and disparities between black and white PIs. Um, and I think that there are some ways that funding agencies can address some of those disparities. And what I think that we should, that should be done is to really see what has been successful in other areas. For example, um, the National Institutes of Health, NIH, um, around the year 2008, instituted a new policy for early stage investigators. It's called ESI uh, investigators. And so what they found also in being very data driven is that um, principal investigators who were younger than about age 40, their funding rates were much lower than principal investigators above age 55. And so in order to address this disparity in the funding rates for scientists of different ages, they instituted certain policies that would um, increase the uh, score for grants that were being submitted by younger PIs. And it has been very successful in terms of being able to level the playing field for um, funding rates for younger PIs compared to more senior principal investigators. That has been successful. We've seen the um, increase in the funding rates because of some of the policies that NIH has put in place. And I think that we can implement something very similar for scientists of color so that their funding rates can eventually um, meet the same level as funding rates of white PIs. So instituting certain policies that would increase the funding rates, such as um, just having um, a different pay line, a different funding line for uh, grants from scientists of color or increasing their scores um, for scientists of color. I think we have to be very intentional and purposeful. And it's not that this is something new, it's, it's new in terms of being able to address this particular disparity, but there have been disparities in funding that go across gender, um, that go across age. And so we can use some of the things that have already been successful and now imply, uh, apply them to increase the funding rates for scientists of color. And so I think that um, there are examples that we can follow, that funding agencies can follow, that have been already successful, that now we can implement to address this uh, disparity in terms of race and ethnicity. You know, Stacey, one of the things that you shared when you were talking to us about your approach to mentoring was that you have to be uncomfortable in your case and in the case of other women of color and scientists of color of potentially um, being the one or or one of few and that might be at a scientific meeting or in your department. And mm -hmm. while I think that's just such a shame that that's the mm -hmm. case, I appreciate yeah. your sharing it. And I also appreciate the movement that the scientific community is having of 
getting comfortable with uncomfortable conversations, which you're exactly right, which is what we need to have um, to level the playing field and to make sure that there is representation that allows us to have all of these um, really unique and wonderful perspectives brought Mm -hmm. to science. So thank you for sharing your approach. All right, Stacey, I'd love to know how has the American Cancer Society and funding from the ACS impacted your your maybe your research and your career? So the work that I've talked about so far has been focused on immunotherapy, but the research funding that I have from the American Cancer Society is uh, being applied in another context. So it's another way that tumor cells and tumors can grow is to get their own blood supply. And so this process is called angiogenesis. And we have been working to build a model about how tumor cells send out a signal in order to get blood vessels to grow towards the tumor to allow the tumor to get oxygen and nutrients that it needs to thrive. And so um, with the support of, of ACS, we've been really Um, um, we've been very much able to make progress in this area to better understand how to perhaps control that signal that the tumor cells are sending out, how to maybe turn it off in some contexts, and also to see, especially in the context of breast cancer, how to better um, inhibit or block the formation of new blood vessels. And this has been really exciting. It's another area of research in my lab that we've made a lot of exciting progress. Something that I'm really looking forward to over the next year is to be able to work with our colleague, our collaborator, who has a mouse model of breast cancer. Again, models are taking on different flavors, um, but she has a, a, a model of breast cancer in the mouse that we can go in and use to test some of the predictions that we get from the mathematical model. And that we've had you know this funding from the american cancer society for about three and a half years and we're really now getting to the place where we've made some exciting predictions and we can go into the experimental uh, setting to be able to test some of those predictions particularly how are these different proteins that would promote angiogenesis how can we um, change their interactions or turn off some of those interactions in order to block the formation of new blood vessels. And so that's something that I'm really excited um, to continue to pursue with the support of ACS. And I have to say that it's not just this one project that um, has been impacted by ACS, but really like my whole research portfolio, having the funding support has been really helpful in um, giving us the freedom to, and, and you know, the, the support to be able to build new and different types of models to answer other types of questions. So it's like having that initial investment in my research lab from ACS has been really helpful in allowing us to branch out into new areas, right? When I started at USC, I was not looking at modeling immune cell signaling at all. We were really just focusing on the formation of new blood vessels and trying to understand that. But formation of new blood vessels also impacts immunotherapy. And so now we're looking at like marrying these two different areas of research in my lab. And that would never have happened, I think, without the support of of ACS. And so it's not just funding one project. It's like helping us to helping me to build um, a really 
nice and what I think is exciting research portfolio. So questions that we're really interested in answering in the context of cancer. I know that's exactly what we hope for, right? We hope to invest in early stage investigators, which can be risky, right? Mm -hmm. Because you may not make it, but when you make it, you, we have planted the seed through this investment for an individual who will go on, as you said, to accomplish some just incredible, incredible, impactful research for cancer and for cancer patients. And then on top of that, you are training all of these graduate students and postdocs and careers in cancer research um, who might not have had that exposure were it not for this initial funding. So it's thrilling to hear the directions that you are going in and we'll stay yeah. tuned. Yeah, I mean, the ACS grant was the first external funding um, support that I was able to secure. And so I, have no doubt that it has helped me, you know, gain more um, funding support from other agencies and was really like a launching pad for, for my lab. So I can't, I can't say thank you enough to ACS. <laughs> All right, Stacey, our, many of our listeners are cancer patients and survivors mm -hmm. and caregivers. I think we'll close by just asking if there's a specific message you would like to share with these listeners. Yeah, I think the message that I would want to share um, to those who are listening who have been personally impacted by cancer is that there are many researchers, basic science researchers and researchers that are trying to, you know, directly bridge and translate their findings into the clinic who are deeply invested and um, impassioned by the resilience that cancer survivors and those who have been personally impacted by cancer display. And that really um, motivates the kind of work that I do. So my ultimate goal with mathematical modeling is to have some prediction that we get from a model or some insight that we have to be able to directly impact patient care. And so that's what really excites me and what helps me to stay motivated, for example, during a pandemic or during times when, you know, we just aren't having the research results that we might expect. It's like, what is the ultimate goal here? To be able to influence how a patient is treated and what their options are. And if we can do that with mathematical modeling, that would be, for me, the ultimate career goal. And so my message to all of you is that you are really the reason why um, I'm doing the work that I'm doing. And I hope that eventually it will have the kind of impact that would influence um, many different patients from different backgrounds, from different racial ethnicities and cultural uh, backgrounds as well. And so it's really sort of the motivating factor uh, for my lab. Thank you much, so much, Stacey. This has just been uh, a joy to talk to you, and we are incredibly excited about you and your work and your impact, and we'll stay tuned. So you stay safe out there. Thank you. You as well. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I wish uh, the best that you take care as well.